Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Daxton R. Stewart, Professor of Journalism in the Bob Schieffer College of Communications at Texas Christian University. We will discuss his new book, Media Law Through Science Fiction, Do Androids Dream of Electric Free Speech, which is published by Rutledge. So welcome to the show, Chip. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a great pleasure. I really enjoyed this book, which talked about many books and movies that I've enjoyed over the years, with the added bonus of putting them in the context of the areas of law that I am also most interested in, intellectual property, privacy law, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, censorship, uh, First Amendment issues, and so on. So, um, so really cool book. Uh, so glad you wrote it. And I was wondering if you could start by just having you talk a little bit about the origin of the book. So like, how did you get interested in science fiction? And when did it kind of strike you that it would be a productive way for thinking about some of these ideas that are implicated by your work as a communications and media law scholar? Right. Um, Well, I, Going way back, um, I got interested in science fiction, uh, probably was a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, which I think I read back in, you know, middle school, and just fell in love with it, with the, with the humor, with uh, um, this kind of vast hilarity uh, running through the galaxy. Um, but it wasn't something I focused on a whole lot besides just reading for pleasure um, until about uh, seven, eight years ago. Um, I was reading Ready Player One uh, by Ernest Cline. A, a friend had recommended it to me, and uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Of course, it hit right at my you know interest area of you know nostalgia for the '80s and old computer games and stuff. Um, but I saw a little passage in there that was about um, what copyright law might look like in virtual worlds um, in the Oasis that he builds. And because I remember reading it and think thinking that's not how the law works. You know, right? And of course, as a, as a professor teaching law, we, it's, it's like watching law and order, right? You can see it and say, you know, objection. That, that's not how any of this works. So we can take the fun out of anything. So I thought, why not take the fun out of science fiction? Um, really more. So I saw this and said, and then I started to think about it in a bit and see, well, what if it could be like that? You know, what, what would make Ernie Klein add in what I thought was a very progressive passage about copyright law in 2044, uh, what it might look like, which was basically in the Oasis, this idea that if something was more than 20 years old, it was basically public domain. Anybody could use it, um, which isn't the way the law works at all. And if you see how copyright law is trending, it doesn't seem to be trending that way. So things could be that different uh, in that short of, of period of time. So I started to think about that a bit and think about what, you know, what it might be telling us about what the future of copyright law might look like using some future technologies. It was just an offhand passage, um, but I dog-eared that page <laughs> and I thought about it a bit and I talked about it with a, with a couple of friends. Uh, one is a Woody Hartzog now at Northeastern University. And I said, well, I'm interested in this and other things maybe a bit like it that have a policy bent toward them. Um, and he said, well, obviously you're talking about Cory Doctorow. Obviously you're talking about Neil Stevenson, um, and recommended some other readings for me. I talked to some other friends and I started to pull out little kind of references about technology and law 
uh, in science fiction, mostly in books, um, that I, I thought were of interest. And I just gathered those for a couple of years. Um, there was a, a special call for a journal, a communication law and policy to look at the next 20 years of media law. And I said, why 20? <laughs> why, why not 50? Why not 100? And that's where I started to really explore this a bit. I, I wrote a, a paper for that call that was ultimately accepted and published. Um, looking at science fiction, fiction and talking about it as a place where um, people think about future technology, people think about what that might mean from a policy standpoint or from a law standpoint uh, as well. And in some places they're even talking about future law as it relates to the technology. And uh, so I look for those sorts of instances in my areas, you know, communication law, so copyright, privacy, AI, uh, free speech, and try to find examples of these in a place where I could, you know, chew on them a bit and see what's there and what maybe it can tell us about uh, the direction of, of law in the future. Do you think there's something special about science fiction as a literary genre or a kind of creative genre that particularly suits it to the kinds of investigations that you want to pursue in this book? Uh, I do, but I don't think it's exclusively useful. Um, I know later in the book when I start talking about destruction of speech um, and, and note all these tropes in fiction of authors, um, you have, they have that one copy of something and it gets destroyed and it's just terrible for them. You know, it's Stephen King in misery or it's um, uh, in Little Women when, uh, when Joe's book is destroyed. You know, so, and these, you know, obviously it's an author's nightmare. So it's not just science fiction, but I do think science fiction, reading a lot about what the author said and when I had the opportunity to talk to them about it, um, you know, they see what they do as kind of a laboratory. So they're, you know, they're telling stories and the goal is to tell good stories, right? It's not all just heavy policy and law-based. Um, tell good stories, but um, they're doing so in some sort of plausible world um, that has modern human connections to it. And they get to play with things there. They get to say, what if we had a technology that, that could do this thing? Or what if the world looked a different way? What would that mean for um, freedom of speech or privacy? Um, so I do think that science fiction, because of, uh, particularly for communication law, because of the technology they develop in it, and then, you know, they put it into that laboratory and say, how would realistic humans or aliens or whatever, how would they behave? How might this alter their behavior? How might this shape the world they're in? And that's what I found very valuable is this, uh, this kind of playground for creative thinkers to go and say, let's throw some new tech at the humans and see what happens. Um, at one point in the book, I talk about, I think it's in the copyright chapter, I say, right, I draw the parallel to the states being kind of the laboratories, you know, you know, so places where you can experiment on laws, you know, for the big federal level. Well, of course, in copyright law, we really can't do that. We have the federal law. That's the one. Um, so I thought that science fiction is a neat outlet for that, you know, to try out different kinds of copyright ideas of law, really bad ones, or maybe more progressive ones and see how that might result in how people create um, or how they use um, their, use old works or create new works from them. Mm. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your process of researching and writing the book, because you didn't just read science fiction books and watch movies, you also talked to authors. So 
maybe you could say a little something about sort of which authors you chose to talk to and why, and what you learned from those conversations. Um, uh, That was a really interesting one early on. I, I wanted to set a basis, so this is the first chapter of the book, of really what it is science fiction authors do and what they see themselves as doing, um, and try to talk to them a bit about why they, um, particularly when they when they were creating new law, like developing new law around the technology they've built, what were they thinking when they did that? Were they rooting this in some sort of law and policy background? Were they just making it up as a plot device? Um, did they just have to have an answer? So this is what they did. Um, and what I found was that some of them were very deliberate. Um, you know, some of them were very um, tech and policy, um, you know, really rooted in those fields. And that would be uh, like uh, Cory Doctorow, obviously, um, uh, whom I you know really appreciated getting to talk to. Um, it was back when the first draft of this paper was published, he actually blogged about it on Boing Boing. And I was just thrilled that he would, you know, pay attention to it. Um, and I got a chance to talk to him some there. I've used some of his books in my courses. I've used A Little Brother, for instance, to teach about privacy law. I've used Pirate Cinema to teach about uh, copyright law. Um, just as ways to engage with students, um, I found them pretty useful as well. But these are very kind of short, near-term um, views at immediate copyright and privacy issues. And they're very policy heavy. And they're like, what if policy looked or law looked like this? You know, what if we had a heavy DHF or DHS crackdown uh, after a terrorist attack and that violated all of our kind of modern norms of privacy? How might people rebel against it? How might that re- they respond? That was little brother. Um, what if very heavy three strikes and you're out draconian copyright laws came down, which were on the table <laughs> around um, um, Oh, the times of, uh, uh, of the, um, you know, the stop on online, um, oh, piracy act, SOPA and PIPA. Um, what if these things really came to be and how would people respond to them? How would they rebel against them? What would life look like if you had your family's internet shut down because the law said you were, you know, downloading too many movies and, and spinning them off and, or, you know, mixing, remixing them into something else. Um, so you have people like, uh, like him uh, and like Annalie Newitz, uh, who was um, a, a, uh, a science writer and a PhD and, and heavily focused on tech and policy before she wrote um, uh, her first book, before she wrote Autonomous. Um, well, Autonomous wasn't even on my radar when I started this project, but it came up and said, well, that's somebody I have to talk to. Um, so I had these kind of, you know, very heavy tech and policy people. And then I started to look around a bit at some others and I talked to them and said, well, who else should I be speaking to? And, uh, Annalie in particular was, uh, very helpful. She suggested I talk to Malka Older about Informocracy, who, uh, which I hadn't read at the time. Then I read all three and then I talked to her and then she very graciously agreed to, to write the foreword for the book. Um, she suggests a lot of other readings. I was really looking for, um, authors who don't look like me, you know, different kinds of authors, a diverse set of authors, maybe people I, uh, you know, haven't had any uh, contact with in the past. Um, then I looked to some other things that I'd read over the years, um, uh, Robopocalypse by Daniel Wilson, um, and uh, some new books popped up by uh, Katie Williams with uh, Tell the Machine Goodnight. I just found it at the uh, City Lights bookstore in San Francisco while there with my wife uh, on our, uh, like, 
20 year anniversary trip. Um, and I stumbled across it. Hey, this book looks lovely. And it was set in San Francisco. So I read through it and just loved it and uh, had a chance to, to talk to her. Um, I picked up Speak uh, by Louisa Hall at Book People Bookstore down in Austin, another great bookstore. And, uh, and just fell in love with the book and the ideas in it and the approaches. So I talked to each of them. Um, and they were a lot more of the, I'd say the literary um, side that they said, you know, I'm really exploring ideas and communication between people. Um, this is how I do it is what happens when some of those people are AI or what happens when those people are, are mediated by this machine. And we you know that, that um, you know, like what Katie Williams introduces. So, so you know, the, lots of different perspectives. Uh, the last one I talked to was Robin Sloan, uh, who did, um, oh, uh, the uh, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, um, which isn't really very much of a science fiction book, though it has a few little tech things in it. Um, I think he's the one that probably would least say I'm a science fiction author and more that he's an, an author who does some science fiction things. Um, but he was very influential in the journalism field because of a short film uh, he and another um, person made uh, about 10 years ago that was looking at the future of journalism through a almost like a darkly sci-fi, you know, merger into, into Google and Amazon and these sorts of things of what the future of journalism might look like in a somewhat startling way. I want to say circa 2004, 2005. Um, and he's been doing some work with, uh, with writing uh, scripts and bots and algorithms as well. So uh, he was a delight to talk to as well about how he incorporates these and actually to, to caution me a bit and say, you know, sometimes we're just writing to tell a good story. You know, we are not writing to, uh, to give you the moral of the story that's very serious, that has a, a strong tech policy outcome. We just want to tell a good story and you don't need to read more into it than that. Um, but still was very kind and supportive uh, of, uh, as I was going through this project. Well, so the book touches on a really wide range of different policy issues in the communications field. But I'll confess, at the end of the day, I'm primarily a copywriting person. Right. So I thought maybe for the purpose of the interview, for the sake of just narrowing things down a little bit, we could, we could focus in particular on the copyright section in, in your book. And you, you, you cite to, you reference and discuss a bunch of really interesting uh, stories and, and books and sort of how they encourage us to think critically about about copyright law. And so the, I was wondering if you could talk more specifically about some of them that you think are particularly relevant or helpful in thinking about these issues and maybe also kind of reflect, re reflect broadly on, on at least my sense that there's a kind of broad-based copyright skepticism among a lot of the authors that you discuss. And I wonder if that's a function of who you chose to focus on, or you think that's more a function of norms and ideas in the science fiction community, and whether those are unique to science fiction as opposed to other forms of literature. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting um, point, and one I um, noticed more and more as I read, and I wondered, because you would think, or at least I would think, authors might be a bit more protective of their copyright. You know, that this is their business, this is the job they do, um, and this is how they get paid. So I, you know, I would expect that, but you're right. A lot of the science fiction authors, I think, um, express a lot of skepticism. Um, I think it might be because of the technology. Um, I do think some of it is because of 
where they found themselves situated and involved in early internet policy, uh, whether it's connections through EFF and other advocacy organizations, which of course, Corey Doctorow is a, uh, is a very important uh, player in, um, and a lot of the authors that are kind of in that, uh, in that circle seem to share a lot of the same ideas about how copyright law maybe should operate. Um, they all seem to be on the same side of uh, SOPA and PIPA, for example, and in uh, the web blackout, um, all seem to share the same um, mourning for Aaron Swartz. You know, we saw a lot of these same things coming, coming out. And of course, it's something I sympathize with uh, as well. Um, but I do, uh, it, it's interesting, uh, Parker Higgins, uh, wrote about this. He said, you know, that he wrote, you know, why is there so much, or where's the, um, I guess, the copyright maximalist science fiction, right? <laughs> the dystopian copyright maximalist science fiction that says, hey, here's the, here's a maximalist perspective. Um, why is it, uh, why is it so great? <laughs> you know, that what's the, what's the good side of this? That doesn't really exist, right? All we see is copyright maximalism is bad. And I think that's a theme I, I noted really throughout in science fiction is a lot of it is exercises in maximalism. That what happens if we take this idea or this tool and take it to its natural ends where things get as bad as possible. Um, so the copyright, you know, uh, maximalist perspectives here would be, um, let's have infinite copyright terms. Um, let's have very serious um, government imposed uh, fines and penalties for violating copyright. Um, and you see those pop up a lot and then start to say, well, what happens when we do that? Um, so in, in the copyright chapter, I look at some of that first. That's very much what is going on in pirate cinema, a very new restrictive British law that's clamping down on this, you know, this, this grubby bunch of teenagers that just wants to make movies. Um, but also the home internet gets shut down and, you know, mom can't work. And, you know, younger sister can't do her homework because everybody's doing everything online. Guess what? That sounds very familiar to all of us today, uh, even though we, uh, uh, Corey Doctorow was writing about that 10 years ago. So what happens if we have those kinds of laws? And then what I really like about it, and, and uh, Corey Doctorow, he, he writes the law. He actually drafts provisions of what this law would look like uh, so people can go complain to their MP about it or can object to it. Um, and it's very specifically kind of tech heavy, you know, or, or I'm sorry, law and policy tech heavy on, you know, what this policy might mean. Um, the, the more fanciful ones would be like uh, Spider Robinson's uh, Melancholy Elephants, which is another one. It's a move in the future for infinite copyright terms. And the policy here is a setup between a, a powerful legislator who's, you know, going to be able to give basically the thumbs up or thumbs down on the bill. And then a lobbyist who comes in and says, oh, we can't do this, that the increasingly um, restrictive copyright laws have so heavily restricted creativity that nobody can do new things. Everything's already been copyrighted. You, you can't have new passages of music or new forms of art. They can't develop because um, everybody's afraid of this big database that's, that's, that your work's going to show up in. So, you know, it's a call for, and this was, of course, was, was written in the 80s when some of these uh, music copyright cases were coming down um, saying, oh, you know, this song's too similar to the ones before it. So you know, obviously we can't let that happen. We're still seeing that happen. We're still seeing that on the, uh, um, you know, the Marvin Gaye blurred lines case, these sorts of things where things that probably should be okay to develop new forms of music are being uh, restricted or punished. Uh, so that's a bit, I think, of what Spider Robinson was looking at. 
20 years ago is what happens when we have that indefinite copyright, which is what Sonny Bono wanted, right? Um, and of course you have the, 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 the pure parody, um, the uh, um, year zero by Rob Reed, which is what happens when aliens find out that they've been um, illegally pirating our music for decades and the penalties would cost more than the entire wealth of the galaxy put together over the, over the entirety of time. Um, obviously the answer would be you blow up earth so you don't have to pay them damages. <laughs> so well, you know, what happens when our copyright law is so ridiculously punitive and restrictive, um, even aliens realize that it, it might be better to do away with us than have to deal with us and our, the one thing we're good at, which is creating pop music. Um, <laughs> so there's that one stretch, right? Of, maximalist copyright law and the absurdities it presents and this idea that this can't continue. Mm. Well, one thing that struck me reading the chapter was that science fiction authors from a previous generation seemed less skeptical of copyright. Maybe not maximalist, but sort of maybe more took it for granted or weren't, didn't find it as objectionable as more recent authors. Like, for example, you reference Isaac Asimov and these funny notes about the galactic encyclopedia. Um, and I know, I think it was Harlan Ellison was kind of famously kind of pro copyright. Um, but it, it, it seems like, you know, a, a later generation of science fiction authors have developed a kind of skepticism for copyright. And I, and I wonder to what extent that shift sort of tracks broader social trends around copyright policy and ideas around copyright policy. And also like something that really struck me, like reading the, the book and kind of reflecting on the stories that you're telling, I mean, every one of them reminds me in a lot of ways of kind of like a law school hypothetical. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, that's uh, a lot of, as I was doing these, I, I would read the, the stories and say, well, this could make a great hypothetical, right? If I were writing it as a law review article, or if I were giving it to a student um, that what if we had this technology or what if we had this intervening event, um, how might you respond to it? How, how might the law respond to it? What if this issue came up? And that's a lot of the, the work I usually do anyway in dealing with tech is now usually what we're dealing with is we've got a new tech or something that comes up and the law just isn't ready to deal with it. Um, so what are we going to do about it? <laughs> right. So, and that's just kind of classic doctrinal go back through um, uh, the cases and notes and history and, and, uh, any law review articles that might be helpful and try to reason out a, a, a proper approach. Um, the, uh, uh, on some of these classic ones and why they might be different, I think it's interesting thinking of Foundation and, and Asimov, for example, that you know, Asimov was in a text-based, print-based world. And so even his idea of the future of civilization hundreds to thousands of years ahead um, it's still text. It's still printed books. It's still newspapers and it's still encyclopedias and bound volumes, as opposed to giant data banks of information, which clearly would be where we are. Um, I think of how Sarah Zhang wrote about, um, uh, you know, how the, the empire's data storage uh, and, and privacy was, was so bad. 
um, in Star Wars that, you know, they, they put things on tapes and put them in big towers. That, that's no, and make single copies of the Death Star plans. That, that's no way to manage data when you can travel through light speed. Um, that you can't transmit things digitally or via email. You put it in, in tapes, uh, which is, you know, just silly to think of. Um, but that's the technology they had available at the time, right? In the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and so I don't think they're thinking as much of what an internet world looks like and what a digital world really was going to look like. So I think the shift is more um, into the modern digital world and the science fiction authors who are of that world. So that's going to be, you know, you know John Scalzi and, and Annalee Newitz and Malka Older, the people who grew up in or developed, um, you know, kind of their thoughts and ideas in this, you know, nascent new way of communicating in the, in the 90s. Well, so one of the things you did in the book that I really liked and found interesting and, and helpful was to talk about science fiction works in relation to legal scholarship and legal developments. And I guess I couldn't help but wonder, when it comes to driving policy change, do you think at the end of the day, the science fiction is more influential in changing hearts and minds, the kind of policy work, or do they inform each other in some ways? Um, yes to all of that. <laughs> that's um, it's interesting because that's one of the things I, I talked with Cory Doctorow about was um, why science fiction as a mechanism for this on tech and policy. And he gave some good answers. He said, you know, that, that people are going to engage with a story, with characters they get in a, they're going to sympathize or empathize with them um, as they see them go through these potential struggles of what the world might look like. So um, he and many other authors were involved in some of these projects where they write short stories about, um, about tech policy or about the environment or about, you know, other issues um, that help to illustrate some of those real policy challenges we face. And sometimes they're about law and sometimes they're, more about policy or ethics, but they're really writing on contemporary issues that do have some of that moral of the story or pose those questions of, you know, you should be thinking about this. You should be thinking about why um, a, a network like Facebook has so much influence on your life and on policy today. Um, and we can do that when we see you read, you know, The Circle or something like that, you, or uh, you read some of these short stories saying, oh, wait a minute, that's, that's outrageous. Well, guess what? That's actually really happening <laughs> right now. Um, uh, the EF, EFF, for example, had several short stories uh, that was just basically on the right to repair, uh, and and uh, section five twelve, I believe. So just some you know some real um, um, you know short stories that are really aimed at some of the absurdities that the law brings out with an idea of advocacy, with an idea of changing those laws. Um, but I think a lot of others, yes, you're right that um, legal research has its place and its role. Uh, I think of you know, informing legal scholars of sometimes informing judges um, or people or legislators. Um, we advocate for policy change or different ways of thinking about things. I really do like these, this hybrid where they get to play together a bit. Um, you have um, legal researchers who use um, either science fiction works or science fiction thinking uh, to develop these hypotheticals and say, well, what happens if, you know, robots to say they want to have rights, you know, um, and we're out of, Star Trek The Next Generation and data, and we're really talking about um, advocating for what those rights might look like. Is it, you know, free speech and free press constitutional rights? Is it right to own property or create things under intellectual property law? Um, 
I think this can tell us a lot about what policy should maybe be and maybe underline some of those, again, policies that were developed for a print world and a different way of communication um, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 years ago um, that maybe don't adapt or play as nicely with, uh, with modern times. Um, copyright law doesn't seem to translate well <laughs> to, it, to, to the way we do things and it gets especially absurd the further you, away you get from the idea that somebody creates something. It's like, well, somebody creates something, that makes sense. There's a copyright. Somebody creates something and that something creates something. You, know, you, you write a script and the script writes something. Um, well, then who gets the copyright? Well, pretty clearly you can trace it back to the original author, right? Or whoever owns the thing that writes the script. Well, what happens when you keep going down levels <laughs> of abstraction here that um, you write a bot, the bot creates a bot, the bot creates a bot, and, bot, and that bot creates something. Um, who gets a copyright there? Um, at some point, the answer is meaningless. Like at some point, the whole notion of creativity is that if a bot can do it, or if a second level bot can do it, uh, if, it's that, if it's that simple for something to be creative, I mean, is it really creative at all? You know, does copyright even fit that problem? Uh, are the exclusive rights grants meaningful and useful? Or is it just a, a bar on creativity at some point? So I, I like scholars who look at those sorts of things. I'd say it's not straight science fiction, but science fiction thinking to develop hypotheticals and to play around with what future law might look like. And the reason I mentioned this is that um, I've seen some really good examples of this, of authors saying, you know, if we look at some of these hypotheticals, they're going to you know, tell us why, uh, like Ryan Kahlo does with, with robots or AI or with drones, you know, why, why we should be making, having these, these, these discussions now, because in five years, what we're going to write about it or what policymakers are going to do about it is already going to be too late. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, we should be informing and having some of these discussions now to try to get ahead of, or at least envision what that future technology might really mean. Mm. Well, so we've been talking a lot about copyright law and science fiction's ability to inform how we think about copyright policy. You, of course, talk about a bunch of other areas of law and policy in the book. In particular, I thought the discussion of, of privacy law was really helpful and provocative. So I wonder if you could just take a couple of minutes to sort of reflect on that aspect of the book and maybe just kind of mention a couple of works that you thought were particularly helpful in that context. Um, it's uh, privacy is, is such a big area. And really the first time I started doing any research in it, I realized how, how, how much over my head I was or, um, or how far over my head the, the, the privacy law was in so many different areas um, and there are just so many books that touch on that. I mean, your classic science fiction, uh, you know, obviously 1984 by Orwell that, um, these ideas of just pure intrusion all the time into solitude and what that means for a society. Um, so much is, is kind of owed to that book or is based on that book. Um, I like a lot of the examples in V for Vendetta, um, which, uh, are again, is, after some sort of cataclysmic event in future Britain, um, it basically goes fascist. And, and there is every moment of your life is surveilled and what that means to people when they try to push back against it. Um, there's a, a lovely little passage, a, a panel in there, where there's a girl who realizes the cameras are off for the first time in a public place. And she starts writing bollocks, 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 you know, down on the ground. Um, 
and she can't even spell bollocks right because nobody's been able to say it or, or spell it right there it's been such a repressive society so this idea of you know what do we do when we get the freedom to have the cameras turned off um very much envisioned in that one um i really liked the, some of these other notions though like katie williams devices um both this one this idea of a of a biometric device that if you, you know, it can take a pinprick, you know, blood sample and then tell you the three things you need to do to make your life great. <laughs> and it just spits it out. It's all behind a, you know, a, a black box of how it actually works. But what does that mean? And what do we do with that information? What's it mean to be happy? Um, what if an, in, a, a big company controls all that information about what makes us happy? Um, and even just some recognition of what, um, uh, of this balance between um, the private areas of our lives and then what I'd say is kind of good government or good policy um, that we don't want to be surveilled all the time. We want to have kind of a zone, a private zone that nobody can look into. Um, but we also yearn for safety. <laughs> and sometimes yeah, that trade-off doesn't play nice. Um, I think Malka Older talks a lot about this without ever using the word privacy. She uh, gets at this balance uh, in infomocracy and in the Sentinel cycle of, you know, you have this kind of worldwide organization that's basically Google plus Facebook plus the UN um, that can, that is kind of all knowing, but good. I mean, the idea is that it's supposed to be there informing good decisions and microelections and that sort of stuff um, and correcting misinformation. Um, but it also does that by having cameras everywhere. And it's going to solve those crimes. Um, it's going to track down the bad actors and still people push back against it because it's a bit much. Uh, people still want a bit more freedom than that. And uh, it's, uh, I found that privacy, um, obscurity and information security and just general security uh, debate in the Sentinel cycle to be a very interesting approach and way of looking at things that I hadn't thought of before. Well, so Chip, in, in closing, I couldn't help but wonder, reading your book and thinking about the examples that you give and how they inform the way we think about various aspects of law and policy, whether science fiction is really about the future and the unknown at all, or more about what we do know and expect very shortly and kind of a way of enabling us to talk about things that are otherwise kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. I think there's a, one of the wonderful things about science fiction is it's, it's a very, it's an extremely diverse field. Um, and it can go from very short term modern discussion of what might happen next year or next week. And it's very realistic and rooted in things today uh, to fantastical future situations on earth of how society might collapse upon itself or, or behave. And you, I think of the handmaid's tale and the Testaments, or I think of, you know, the hunger games world or, um, Oh, Tony Thompson's Rosewater, though. That's a little more, less possible because there's a giant alien invasion in it, but, or mysterious alien device, but, you know, but you know, what happens to society when, uh, with just cultural change, it doesn't even have to be technologically based. I mean, Fahrenheit 451, only technology is a, flamethrower i mean i guess they, they have big tv walls and stuff but it's not really a book about tech at all it's about what happens when we change as a society um so you have those about you know thinking about the future but you can also have these you know fantastical ones that are on other planets that are a lot about the human condition 
um, I think of China Medieval's um, Embassy Town, which is really about how we communicate, you know, and how, you know, different species communicate with one another and how we have trouble communicating among ourselves and just adapting to language. Um, and that's, there wasn't really any tech or policy I could see in that, but it's a really wonderful and difficult way of uh, trying to figure out how we understand one another and people different from us and that the way we conceive of the world and use language isn't going to be the same on our planet, much less you know, in other places. So I think, uh, again, just wonderfully diverse. It can be extremely tech and law uh, and policy driven. It can be very useful for those sorts of things, or it cannot be at all. Um, <clears throat> one last book I'd like to talk about is, uh, for people who haven't read, read it, uh, Station Eleven, um, which is, uh, um, it's really, it looks at a future where the tech is all gone, you know, where, where basically everything has gotten shut down. Um, and it's a traveling Shakespeare company um, and how they, you know, how we respond to all our tech being away and what society might look like when that sort of thing happens. And it gets a lot into this, this idea of what's art and what's it mean to communicate with one, one another. And why do we, you know, why do we still have a fascination with Shakespeare? You know, what are, what are some of those essential truths we get at? And it's a delightful book that I don't, if it makes an appearance, I think it does make a very brief, brief appearance in my book. Um, but I just found it very, uh, a, a very sweet and heartening book in a lot of ways of what it might mean like, what it might be like to live in a, a, a society where technology has failed. You know, what have we lost by having all this technology and what do we lose when we lose all that technology? Well, Chip, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed your book and, uh, it was a lot of fun to read and I, I recommend it highly to listeners because we only barely scratched the surface of the various uh, works you talk about and stories you tell about them. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Be brave, your warriors, be brave.
brave, your warriors be brave. Fly, your warriors fly. Fly, your warriors fly. Spread your wings and take off.